Welcome to Jack Chat presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and your host today. Today, I'm joined by the authors of the editorial on preseason heat safety in secondary school athletes and associated multiple articles that resulted from a roundtable discussion to develop best practice recommendations for heat safety in this setting. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Doug Cassa, a familiar name in the world of external heat stroke and secondary school safety because he is the chief executive officer at Corey Stringer Institute and professor at the University of Connecticut. I'm also joined by Dr. Will Adams, an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina Greensboro, and Dr. Yuri Okasawa, who is an associate professor at Waseda University in Japan. Doctors Adams and Hosaka are also members of the Corey Stringer Institute's Medical and Science Advisory Board. Doug, Will, and Yuri, thank you so much for joining me today. An honor to be here. Thank you for having us. Yes, very, very glad to be here. So the first thing that I want to ask you guys is what what was the impetus for focusing on the secondary school setting in particular? Well, I think you should go first since you were the, the ringleader of this entire um, operation. Yeah, I guess I can provide a little bit of background um, regarding this whole kind of how this came to fruition. So um, I believe it was fall of 2018. I was having a conversation with um, someone here in North Carolina. And to be honest, I can't remember who it was. I think it was either it was either a high school athletic trainer or it was someone involved with the State High School Athletic Association. But it, nonetheless, it was a conversation with someone regarding heat acclimatization, um, particularly here in North Carolina, and how to really manage it from the sense of non-football athletes. Um, and the, the initial 2009 document of heat acclimatization was really football-centric. Um, and... They were just looking for some advice. And from that, I uh, had the idea of like, well, why don't we update the heat conversation guidelines? Because it's been now almost 12 years. Um, and I think we could do a lot of good work as far as expanding those to include other sports. So I, I called Doug. Um, I think right after that conversation, I have an awesome idea. Um, we should, we should um, have a meeting to update the heat conversation guidelines. And then Doug's like, you know what? We should bring Yuri into this conversation and we should not only work to update the heat conversation guidelines, but we should also um, address the environmental modification guidelines since there are none. Um, and this would be a perfect opportunity to kind of kill two birds one stone. And then as a third part, um, focusing on the pre-hospital care of, of exertional stroke, particularly to, or specific to the high school athlete, um, and really addressing the, the myths and the misconceptions that are currently in conversation, um, you know, amongst, uh, you know, individuals in our profession and, and, and elsewhere. Um, for everything. So that's how things kind of get started. And, and I think the, the big impetus for the secondary school athlete is the fact that there's 8 million plus student athletes participating in high school sports in our country. Um, so that's a pretty large population of individuals to, to worry about and care about. Um, and uh, that, you know, population has probably the biggest impact. Yeah. To, to back that up, I just want to make clear, Will, Will deserves the credit for this all happening. So these three articles and the editorial would have never happened without him taking the lead. Um, Yuri and I got to go around, go along on a very good ride um, on this. Um, Kevin Miller also deserves um, a lot of credit. He was lead author on one of the papers, but the three of us 
that are on this right now um, really worked hard to make this happen and plan this out over the course of a year. And like I said, Will took the lead and we got big support from ACSM and NATA um, and KSI all came on board to provide some of the financial infrastructure that was needed when we met. Um, but then we were just honored. I, Will, you can back me up. I was at 30, 35 or three people that met. There right? were three people in total from literally around the world that came yeah. and met um, for this meeting. Yeah, we met at the ACSM meeting in 2019 because we thought it would be a good collection of people from different disciplines, um, both, you know, researchers and clinicians. And uh, what an awesome opportunity because we broke those 33 people up roughly into, you know, three groups of 10 or 11. And like Will mentioned earlier, had those three different areas of, uh, you know, focused content. So can you tell more about what you thought were the current challenges to appropriate prevention and management of exertional heat stroke in secondary school athletes in particular that you really wanted to address? Yeah, you want to take like some of the prevention side and I can talk about some sure, of the treatment sure. side. So um, as well, and Doug mentioned, the one of the uniqueness about this series of paper was that we were able to touch on the environmental monitoring, which I personally have a very um, high passion. I'm very passionate about this environmental monitoring because I feel like in terms of managing exertional heat illness or any, you know, heat illness related risk prevention strategies, having the weather information to proactively implement safety measures is something that anyone can do. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, you know, athletic trainer per se. It, it should be athletic trainer making your clinical decisions, but the coaches, you can get them involved. You can get the athletes get involved. You can get the administrators involved. So I feel like it is one of more of a tangible, um, topic that you could engage your stakeholder into thinking about environmental heat safety. So, so knowing that and having the secondary school setting as our primary focus, you know, it was really kind of a neat, opportunity for us to invite biomediologists and people who work in the meteorology world come with us and have this open discussion with clinicians who work with secondary school students actively so that we're merging the scientific information with exercise science as a hub, but then now generating this um, list of policies or the recommendations for clinicians who are now will be working this summer, you know, preseason practices. So kind of connecting those dots and I think the environmental monitoring piece is really the introductory piece to engage these individuals. Because when people think about heat illness, they most likely think about the most severe case, exertional heat stroke. And that is very important. But when it comes to day-to-day -day prevention and how to make them think about, you know, the risk of heat, um, I feel like the environmental monitoring piece is really a good way to not threat them, but have them really actively think about the risk. Yeah, that was well well said, Yuri. From the treatment side, Will alluded to this a little when he started. Um, Kevin Miller and I took the lead on that uh, particular paper, and we just have big hurdles we're still trying to overcome, um, and they they um, they're lingering. They're, they're getting a lot better nationally, um, but they're still lingering. And we thought that some detail in this document might prove helpful to the clinician. Um, a couple of specific areas would be something like cool first, transport second. You know, athletic trainers across the country still are, you know, relinquishing care of their heat stroke victim the second that the ambulance arrives and really could be the, you know, 
really the pathway to a, a, a adverse outcome because the person's not going to get cooled aggressively in the ambulance or at the hospital um, as well as they could have been, you know, cooled on site if they were continued with the cold water immersion. So that's one big one. The second one is certainly the rectal temperature assessment on site by the athletic trainer. I mean, these are licensed medical professionals dealing with a life or death um, medical condition, and yet they're hesitant to, you know, provide, you know, do the absolute key diagnostic criteria um, assessment that's needed, um, and are all, often not supported by the athletic directors, principals, and superintendents. But we need to empower um, these clinicians with the best information possible and the best strategies that they can utilize, so that we can, you know, be implementing best practices and obviously optimizing care. And Doug, since you're mentioning it, let's kind of hone in on that um, pre-hospital care paper. That manuscript was a bit of a different format in that it was this posing myths and then providing summaries of the evidence, which was a really nice way to look at um, these things that secondary school athletic trainers are having to go to battle for, right? So what were some of the bigger myths that you tackled and how do you recommend a athletic trainer take the information you guys provided to go to key stakeholders? A good question. Yeah. I mean, I think we purposely did that. I mean, I think Will and Yuri just did an amazing job with their papers of upgrading the, the scientific um, understanding of their two topics. With ours, we were a little different because in 2018, a paper was published on pre-hospital emergency care um, for exertional heat stroke. So we, we kind of didn't have to reinvent the wheel of best practices right there because it had just happened the year before our meeting. But like you just said, we wanted to help arm these athletic trainers with, um, you know, these skill sets to overcome a lot of the obstacles and hurdles, right? That have existed before. Um, so, you know, the things like, you know, them being youth athletes that you can't do a rectal temperature because they're youth athletes, they're under 18 and, you know, that somehow we're infringing on some issues related to youth. But if someone needed an AED, like a female athlete needed an AED, we would obviously strip them down, take off their bra or their sports bra, and we would save their life at that key moment, even though there might be brief moments or seconds of nudity there, right? Um, so we tried to explain that as one example. I mean, the cool first transport second concept, I mean, there's, I mean, it is true. And almost all states have laws that say that when the ambulance arrives, that they're the primary caregiver and they take over control of the situation. But we tried to give strategies to show them that if you met with these EMT providers in the off season and develop new guidelines, they almost always will want to work with you because they're, they're very receptive if you take the time to do that. And then also you can push things through the state. Um, policyholders like the state emergency room physician groups and the state EMS groups, if you can get them on board and educated, then you can, you know, you can work that way, which even makes it easier because then, you know, you have the whole state behind you. So we just tried to, to kind of confront all the big hurdles that they were facing and then looked at potential strategies. How do you recommend getting this conversation started about getting access to a rectal thermometer at the high school, having the administrator actually pay for one? It's a good. It's a good question. I mean, Yuri, Will, and I. I mean, it's ironic that it's six a.m. right now in Japan because I have to tell you that Yuri and Will used to come in my office around five thirty or six a.m. every morning, and we used to literally chat. They'd have their Dunkin' Donuts or their Starbucks in their hand, and for an hour they would sit there before they got their workday started. The three of us would sit there at six o'clock in the morning, um, and it, we had these conversations so many times. And I think. The thing is, is when you get the superintendent, principal, athletic director involved and the team physician and the athletic trainer, and if you have a private conversation and explain all of this, 
most rational administrators end up coming on board. In my career, I've been 100% successful with getting them on board when we have these individual conversations um, because they're usually pretty smart, have good common sense, and we can usually make it happen. When they don't fully understand what's really happening, um, then they get a little scared about what we're dealing with because they don't really fully understand heat stroke, right? Um, I think another big thing is, is that from a liability perspective, the high school in every single case in America and every civil lawsuit that's taken place for heat stroke, the high school has lost the lawsuit. Okay. Because it's so simple, right? Rectal temperature, cold water immersion, cool them till they're under 104. They survive hundred percent of the time. And so it's not tough to convince a jury that that's super feasible because it's ice water in a tub. It's 150 bucks. Like, I mean, why did we not save this kid's life? So when you start explaining that to the administrators, I think they they start to understand that because it's like, wow, I, I didn't realize, you know, that it's 100% successful and this is the gold standard for treatment. Um, I think a, a key tip that I have found successful is that if you can get a team physician at your high school who has some sports medicine background, you know, AMSSM trained or ACSM team physician course trained, those people are going to want to support best practices because they're not going to want to go down, you know, in the flames of some problem later, right? They're going to want to support best practices. So that's been another strategy. But I, getting people in a conference room during a non-stressful situation in January talking about heat stroke policies is, for me, the right right way to go. Um, ambulance services and the school administrators. So now the perfect time as these manuscripts are coming out for people to start looking at this and reviewing their policies before going into literally the heat of the year, right? So let's talk a little bit more about those other two manuscripts, particularly how you guys did a really great job of giving people tools that they can implement almost right away. Let's talk about heat acclimatization. So um, Yuri, what were the, what period of time do you recommend as this acclimatization period? So I think it really depends on the context and which sport you're working in. Um, I know as well, kind of alluded to in the initial conversation that all the previous or most of the previous documents that had touched on secondary school heat act was really football specific, meaning that we could really guess, you know, maybe about the first week of August, they are start, you know, they're starting to do workouts as a team outdoors. So the context was somewhat given, but in our new you know upcoming paper we've also um, touched on some of the more of a general principles about heat acclimatization so we're going to be touching on the physiological kind of premises so that the clinician understand what are the absolute kind of um, items that you need to hit the slur effect so so we're not specifically saying that you have to start on this week or, you know, at this month, but we're giving the context in terms of you'll need, say, for example, 10 to 12 days for you to get fully acclimatized. And during those period of time, you can't not ramp up your exercise intensity rapidly. So then if you were to be having, you know, the first competition, the first week of September, you're going to have to do the back, back calculation and, you know, really talk with the coaches, for example, it's not going to be just the athletic trainer's decision to make this kind of scheduling um, items. And you also have to always look into the state regulations that when you can start official practices as well. But hopefully, you know, we're hoping that the clinicians actually can think actively about this and make their own decision that fits them the most. And I think that's what we really 
um, tried to focus on in the HEDAC paper and also the environmental paper that we didn't necessarily give a firm copy and paste guideline, but we really gave the principles behind it so that they could custom to whatever the need or what ter- um, types of circumstances they might be in. Because we also understand that we can't do the perfect implementation from right away. We need to go step by step. Um, and we always get that question at, say, NATA convention. We host um, heat-related um, you know, seminars and courses. And a lot of the questions that we receive are, well, we can't do all of this. And we totally understand that because these are all the best principles that we are recommending. But then it comes to the adaptations and implement- implementation piece. So um, you'll find in tables, in table format, some of the key steps that we're recommending clinicians to follow. So hopefully um, the upcoming paper will look a little bit more practical than, for example, position statement. And I'm going to pass it on to Will because he was actually the lead on the heat app. So. And I think, you know, to add on to Yuri's point, you know, with the overall time period, I think you can look at it from two, two, two different perspectives, right? How long should that period be? And then when it should be done, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think when we, when, when we expanded this to be more than just with football, which is, you know, occurring here in the United States in July and August, and we're including all sports, right? So we're including baseball and softball, we're in, including sports that occur in the spring. And you'll know, think down in, in like, you know, Florida, for example, where it is warm and hot you know, most of the year. Um, you know, where we're starting to have some considerations as far as, yeah, this should be done not just in August, but it should be done during the beginning of all sports where they're exposed to environmental heat stress, um, which I, I think is very helpful. And, you know, I think from a time course perspective, you know, we didn't really change much in terms of the, the time course, and we're still recommending two weeks um, because that's just going to be a, a good period of time to make to ensure that almost all the adaptations that you could acquire during that period of time are obtained. and you know, in, independent of age and sex and, 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 and all that. Um, so, you know, I, I think that was why you know, we took the approach we did in, 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 in um, allowing some flexibility in with some of the recommendations, especially with the induction and time course and everything, but being specific as far as, hey, this is how you would, you would, you would progress and, and gradually increase the volume, intensity, duration, and equipment for those um, relevant sports. And are there any potential other benefits to this heat acclimatization besides just decreasing heat stroke risk? Yeah, I mean, you're really increasing your your ability to perform in, in, in heat. Um, so with some of the adaptations, the cardiovascular adaptations where you're decreasing your exercising heart rate, you're increasing your sweat rate and your, your sweating efficiency and you're decreasing your, your exercise and, you know, body temperature. Yeah. You're preventing exertional heatlessness or, or mitigating the risk. Um, but you're also creating an, uh, an environment fit in, within your body that you can perform better. Um, because your body's not under as much stress as it would be normally if you're just exposed to, to heat. And for, you know, for example, yesterday, um, you know, swarming up here in North Carolina, yesterday it was 86 degrees. Um, and my, my wife's an athletic trainer at a high school. And so she had her WBGT monitor out in the field and, you know, she came home and, you know, one of her, one of her linemen was struggling and, you know, it was, it was really the first warm day where it was pretty brutal. Um, so, you know, there's you know, a good example where, you know, you're, you're, you're struggling, you're not being able to perform because it's the, it's an extra stressor that is in being imposed onto your body. Um, so yeah, from a performance perspective, it's very effective, um, as well as the prevention of, of heat illness. 
And so there's the time aspect, but there's also the the load and the intensity aspect. Can you speak a little bit on that as how to monitor the intensity of exercise during this acclimatization period? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few approaches that you can take. Um, oftentimes in the lab setting, uh, where we can have really a lot of control over people, um, you can do a couple of approaches where you can have, you know, fixed, you know, temperature, where you can have them exercise to a certain threshold and have them maintain that threshold for a certain amount of time. Um, or you can have, you know, set intensities there. And again, that's really controlled. And, and you know, it's often on one-on-one researcher and, and, and participant or subject. Um, and that's not applicable to high school sports, whereas, you know, a cross-country mm-hmm. team, they're out on a cross-country course or a football team. Um, in, in those cases, you're often left with more of the self-paced approach where you're, you're allowing the athletes to self-pace themselves through those workouts um, to, to acquire those adaptations. That's what's done in the military, um, and, and that's been very successful in mitigating risk, um, in, at least in the military um, um, setting. Um, some other approaches you can take are you're looking at, you know, um, rates of perceived exertion. Um, and, you know, some education needs to be done there where you, you want, okay, well, we want an RPE of, say, 7 out of 10, right? But that 7 out of 10 needs to be what it would be if it was cool outside. That way you're still, you're still, you know, okay, this is where my intensity would be. And you're doing it a lower intensity in the heat because of that extra heat load, right? Um, so you can help kind of maintain safety there. But that does take some education. Um, you know, another approach, um, would be to monitor heart rate and, and base your workouts based on heart rate. But again, that, that becomes an issue with resources, right? Making sure people are equipped with heart rate monitors and everything. So at the high school level, especially when you're looking at high schools across the United States, when you have schools that don't have any resources, um, to schools that have a lot of resources, you need to find a way to make sure it's all inclusive. And in, in the paper, we really recommended that that self-paced approach is probably going to be the best approach for at least the high school athlete. The, something else to support what Will's saying too, the, the self-paced is, is certainly is fantastic where, where I have found, um, and the evidence will back it up, where people run into problems is when coaches try to demand uniformity from their team. So if they say, for instance, everyone's got to run the gasser in 30 seconds and we're doing 20 of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be great for 95% of the athletes, but you might have a few there who are huge linemen who just, you know, carrying 320 pounds is just more difficult over space, or someone might be coming back from an injury or a vacation, or it might be a freshman who didn't do the summer conditioning for the last six weeks. And so when you try to funnel everyone into the same little box, um, that's a, almost a, a huge majority of the problems you run into in the heat. Um, so hopefully that can also be educational um, from the document. Actually, that's a great point, Doug. And I think, you know, when we, when we went and approached the recommendations, and the, the last thing, you know, Doug said was, you know, having, having people do gassers or, or something and, and having a, a, a time frame, right? Um, you know, high intensity work within the recommendations. We, we explicitly kind of approach that scenario. We're like, if you're going to do, you know, conditioning work or if you're going to do high intensity work, that's going to drive that metabolic heat production quite a bit. Well, that needs to be done either as a standalone session, mm-hmm. done any other practice or it needs to be done at the very beginning of practice. So that can be done. Then you can take some break and then get into more of the instructional strategic approach to your practice to help mitigate risk versus waiting to the very end where it is oftentimes the case. And if you're at the end of a practice and, you know, the kids are fatigued, now they're having to do very high intensity work and then you come into problems. So I think that's one of the, the novel parts of this is, you know, we've addressed the intensity piece from that perspective to really kind of, um, 
further drive home some points, particularly as it comes to the coaches and, and um, those coaches who um, may expect uniformity, as, as Doug had said. I think, I think important too, uh, all three of the articles emphasized one key item is almost all heat strokes happen in the high school level in like the first week they're back, right? So at the high school level, especially, I mean, they certainly happen in conditioning sessions when it's not supervised in June and July. There's no question about it, but um, the first week back, that's why we're, we're trying to make these modifications with HEDAC, why we're trying to have the right policies in place if we have to care for someone. And certainly the work to rest ratio modifications based on the environmental conditions, it's always relevant throughout any time it's hot, but it's especially relevant in the first couple of weeks you're exercising the heat because there's no question. Um, everything is just more difficult then. You guys have really done a great job of giving the athletic trainer tools to suggest modifications rather than just being the one that's always saying, no, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that really did come across and managed. And I hope that you can see how they utilize this to, to not have to be the person always saying no, but the, the yes, but let's do it this way. But how do we now get this into the clinician's hands, right? Because unfortunately, the, a lot of clinicians are not reading JAT. You know, they're not reading our editorial that uh, the three of us are, you know, did and going to come out in a few weeks. How do we, I mean, I'm thinking NATA News is probably our best bet, right? Can they have a one page infographic in NATA News to highlight these three different components and then funnel them to the document? To me, that would seem like a, a win-win for a lot of people. And that's exactly why we have chat chat. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, because that's the, the statistic of it takes. 10 years from when an article is published to it be implemented in clinical practice, right? Let's, Mm -hmm. let's try to cut down on this. And, um, and I will say to all those clinicians listening that, that it is a more digestible than the position statements, right? Mm -hmm. That everybody needs to read and they know they need to read, but they dread reading, right? It's, it's more digestible and you get a lot more take home, um, implementation. Um, let's talk about region specific because my heat out here in Las Vegas is a lot different than Texas, Florida, Georgia, right? What role does region, even micro region play in acclimatization? Well, Yuri, I'm going to let you take that with the, the region specific stuff and you can you know, go there. So I'm going to let you take, take, the, take, take off on that one. All right. Um, so Definitely regionally specific guidelines are on considerations are important because what you just said, you know, in Las Vegas versus in, you know, Austin, Texas or Dallas, even within Texas, say Dallas and Austin and everybody else, you know, the climate um, and the weather characteristics could really influence what type of heat stress is posed on to these athletes. One of the two major category that we usually um, point out is hum- um, humidity, high humidity heat and then versus the dry heat and the humidity piece in itself could really differentiate the type of heat stress that's posed to the athlete for example if it's in a high humid situation you know your ability to evaporate your sweat is reduced so then you really don't have any rep venue of you know heat dissipation from your natural um, physiological mechanism so to say versus when it comes to dry heat, yes, to a certain point, you can evaporate your, you know, dissipate your heat through that way. But 
when it comes to a very high, high air, dry heat, like you would see in the desert um, environment, then you would only, only gain the heat from the environment. So it's really not helping the fact that you're in the dry heat. So, so putting that back into the context of heat acclimatization training specific considerations, you know, obviously if you'll be in that region and you'll be your plan to perform in that environment, then you'll eventually have to get used to that environment. So, um, so I'm not to say that you have to avoid it at all costs because you are living in that situation. You are, you know, playing and performing in that context, but there is a threshold where you can, or no human can really withstand without having extreme uh, risk of exertional heat stroke. So there's always this ceiling that you need to acknowledge and you also need to acknowledge the fact that heat acclimatization will optimize your performance but again there is always that ceiling where you have to know that up to a certain point it has an effect and it has a great effect in in reducing exertional heat illness regardless of which type of region you're living in we've seen that in previous literature but when it comes to the safety perspective there is a limit to it. So then you have to either reduce the duration um, of the practice or reduce the intensity or maybe, you know, even cancel the practice for that day and reschedule. But unless you have those in written format, even if you might think out on the field saying, thinking that, okay, today is brutally hot, Mm -hmm. unless you have it on paper and have a consensus made with the coaches and other decision makers, it becomes extremely hard, even though you know that this is maybe the hottest day that the state has ever recorded. You know, you can't really make the decision or make the move unless you've had an agreement about it. And I think that's exactly what really happened with the Corey Stringer case. You know, they recorded one of the high, top, um, most brutal heat that they've ever recorded in Minnesota on the day Corey had collapsed exertional heat stroke. So, they and they they were all there. They've all experienced it, but somehow they never really had any measures to implement because I'm guessing that they never had the plan prior to the event. So I know that was an extreme example, but extreme going back to happen, that's why we yeah yeah yeah. So going back to the secondary school setting, um, you know, athlete trainers work really close with the coaches, so making those. Um, Kind of what is that critical threshold for their environment and the, and for the ATs to give the scientific and medical and clinical rationale about why we feel that. For example, you know, in some regions, say WBGT value, you know, we use that in the position statements as well. And I think we've um, given an example from state of Georgia. They've done a pretty robust study. Um, spanning into six years total, I think, three years of data collection, and then they tested out their policy. And then after the implementation, they collected the data for three additional years, and they saw a great reduction in exertional heat illness um, incidence rates after implementing the environmental monitoring piece and also the HEAT Act um, policy as a mandatory kind of regulation. And so, but the 2015 position statement gives that example, but it doesn't necessarily give clinicians. So how can I implement? Because like you just said, we don't live in Georgia and it's different. So, so 
it, and then that goes back to, well, ATs usually, or they do take injury surveillance data, you know, what they record, what they see each day. And so making sense of your environment by tying those information with what's really happening, you know, that could give you more clinically meaningful context to whatever the number, say, the WBGT might say. Um, I haven't been using Fahrenheit for long years, so I can't convert it back. But say in Celsius, you know, WBGT is around 31. Um, anything above 28, for example, I think that's equivalent to 82 in Fahrenheit because it's the flip flop. That's how I remember. But that's when you start to see more exertional heat illness. But say that you live in, say, northern states and that wasn't the case. Maybe you might see the kind of the little um, increase in those numbers. Say it was 26, for example. You know, you, you never know what the pattern might be for your region or for your climate. And even within state for your, you know, where your secondary school is located, it might be different too. So, so it's the best scenario is that everybody has those information about when these exertional heat illness occurred in the past. Look back into what type of exercise they were doing. What was the timing? Were they likely to be heat acclimatized or not? And then go back to the environmental specific information. What was the condition like? And that way, as you accumulate those information and with your experience, you know, with as an AT, looking at the situation and everything, then you can make your own policy that aligns with the best practice. And then now you've essentially done what the state of Georgia has done, but now you've made your own policy that's evidence-based for your school. So, so region does matter, but we don't have the cookie cutter kind of answer to it. But I know AT has all the information they need to make those clinical decisions. Thank you. Yeah, you do a really great job in that paper of, of how to utilize it to make it very specific to you. Because there, I mean, particularly out here in Las Vegas, the, it is a very, very different kind of heat. And the things that our high school athletic trainers are worried about, it's not the it's not the humidity it's the fact that your surface temperature is nearing 120 on the turf sometimes and those types of concerns are all different what recommendations do you guys have for addressing any potential barriers to adoption of um, creating these policies you want want me to take that one yeah, go ahead. I mean, you, you probably have uh, the best handle of things with the uh, current projects KSI is doing. Yeah, it's a good question. I um, For people who are watching this right now who don't know what Tufts is, it's an acronym Team Up for Sports Safety. It's part of the NBA and the NFL um, to visit all 51 states, including District of Columbia, to try to enhance health and safety standards for high school sport. And I would, you know, really encourage the athletic trainers who are looking at these documents um, and moving towards adaptation, um, adoption of these is to reach out to your state sports medicine advisory committee, reach out to your state high school athletic association. Um, and we kind of have to actively push people um, to be, you know, moving towards adopting best practices. I mean, and if your state has some decent things, can they do more? I mean, you think of like a Dave Salon in New Jersey, like they have really good stuff in New Jersey, but he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing or Bob Sefcik in Florida or 
um, Scott Arsenault in Louisiana or Jason Cates in Arkansas or Mike Carroll in Texas and uh, Bud Cooper in Georgia. All these are athletic trainers who have just kept pushing and pushing and pushing to try to get state level implementation of policies. And I think that that's absolutely critical, right? Because, you know, the, I always think is, you know, you may have certain school districts that take the lead and a lot of times they have more resources, right? They might be the ones who have the athletic trainers. They might be in a little more economically pr- privileged areas that they can focus on these things. Um, and, but not all school districts, you know, might have those, you know, circumstances that are ideal. And if we develop state level policies, um, then all the athletes in the state benefit regarding, regardless of the socioeconomic status. I think it also really pushes forward um, the need for athletic trainers at the high school level, right? Because if you have a heat acclimatization policy and a WBGT policy and a cold water immersion, cool first transport, second policy and an AED policy and a coaching education policy and a conditioning policy and all these different policies, there's no athletic director in America at the high school level that wants to monitor all these things or manage all of these things. These are, um, should be done by a licensed healthcare professional at the high school level. And obviously the athletic trainer is the perf- perfect person suited for that. And, and I think all of these move towards best practices also just encourages the um, utilization and appreciation of athletic trainers at the high school level. Yeah, we're seeing these, all the states have implemented some sort of concussion legislation, mm-hmm. right? And are there states that are moving towards having legislation for this topic as well? Absolutely. To give you an example, three years ago, we released our evaluation of all 51 states and 38 states have made policy changes in just three years. Um, So there's massive momentum. And just to give you an example, just last year, Louisiana, Florida and New Jersey, just following our Tufts meeting in the state, all three of them carried forward massive policies that the governor signed into law in 2020. And those are, you know, obviously big states there. They all matter. But I mean, you think of the number of athletes just in those states and they face some huge heat issues, especially Louisiana and Florida. And it's not just heat policies. I mean, these address, you know, cardiac head injuries, other things like that. But um, but there's huge momentum right now. And I, I, the athletic trainers are the ones driving this. The athletic training, athletic trainer leaders in the, each of these states are the ones driving these policy changes. And it's amazing and awesome to see um, us, you know, taking the lead as a profession, right? And I think that this is really ultimately helping push our profession forward. So what are some first steps, some takeaway things that somebody who's listening to this and goes and reads the manuscripts can do in order to start decreasing their athlete's risk of heat stroke and improving patient outcomes? Well, why don't you take that one? Yeah, I think the first thing I'm going to follow from Doug's conversation is, is, you know, if you're thinking of the, the potential barriers and the, you know, facilitators to, to have some, you know, success, and we have actually have a table in the heat acclimatization paper that kind of provides some examples, at least from that context. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually looking at it right now and, and out of all the different barriers, right, you know, financial and, and available guidelines and buy-in and, and, oh, it's not hot where I live. But if you look at the, the strategies for really proper implementation, you can really kind of hone in on the fact that it's just communication, right? So, like, I think from the athletic trainer perspective, the first thing you can do is have those conversations with those stakeholders, right? Your, your athletic director, your principal, your superintendent, the the parents, the parent groups, the, the booster club, like that's huge. And I know down here in the South, at least here in North Carolina, booster clubs are, are huge. 
they, they bring a lot of money. There's a lot of support. So like bringing those people together and like having those conversations and communicating with them and getting their buy-in is huge. And then from there, it's like, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to have this policy and this is what this needs to look like. And if you have that buy-in and, and everything, I think you're, you're in a much better place than you were before. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think communications is simply put that right away would be a, a good foot in the door. So in our last few moments together, um, I just wanted to ask you guys, what is on the forefront of policy or research in this area that you're really excited about? Yuri? Sure. So this kind of puts the focus outside of the U.S., but now, since I've now lived in Japan and kind of bringing all these discussions that we just had right now, we're facing the similar situation, even bigger, actually, barrier in Japan because athletic trainers are not uh, considered a, as a licensed healthcare professional. We, there are athletic trainers, but we don't have the same um, ability to provide services, for example. So what we're trying to do is, as someone who are, you know, the specialist in the field of sports medicine, athletic trainer, not although not considered licensed professional or trying to educate our coaches and you know the stakeholders what we just talked about um in terms of the heat illness prevention for example so now for my kind of in near future really all the things that we've gone through in the states of how we've kind of moved forward and implementing the best practices now we're translating it to the context of different country different situations different healthcare structure how can we protect these youth athletes um so so yeah i would like to actually say thank you to doug for making me you know experience all these journey with you in the u.s because now it's actually not just impacting the children in the u.s but also people in japan as well that's awesome. <laughs> well, a shout out for Yuri, too. She would never toot her own horn. Um, she's been very active preparing for the Tokyo Olympics, working on the a special committee, the International Olympic Committee Forum for Heat Safety. And she's um, trying to implement a lot of these best practice um, policies for pre-hospital care of exertional heat stroke um, and infusing it into each of the venues um, for the upcoming Olympics. That's amazing. It's good to know that our athletes are going to be well taken care of over there. Yeah. So I think to answer your question from, from my perspective is, is actually kind of the next step, right? So, you know, we talked about environmental monitoring and activity modification. We talked about heat climatization. We talked about the pre-hospital care and exertional heat stroke. So we talked about the prevention things and we, we've done a lot of that, a lot of that stuff for a very long time, right? And the pre-hospital care. So we, we know what to do to save people's lives. Um, an area that I'm actually interested in is, is after, after the event, right? And, you know, how do we, Probably man, probably manage the rehabilitation of these, of these patients that have exertional heat stroke. And it's vastly different. And, and currently the recommendations that exist are really just driven on consensus or expert opinion. Um, and there's really no solid evidence to suggest this is what the, the return to play protocol should be, where, you know, with, in the concussion literature, it's, it's, it's very much improved in the last, you know, decade or more. Um, but with exertional heat stroke, that's the biggest gap in the literature that exists is, okay, once someone has a heat stroke, how do we get them back to activity where they're not going to have continued issues? That's a great point. For me, um, the, all, the whole realm related to sickle cell trait, I think, is going to be one of the next big things at the high school level. We've seen great progress at the pro level and college level. Um, and, you know, carrying forward um, 
testing at birth information and infusing it into PPEs at the high school level and then using that information to kind of mandate education um, for coaches um, and for the athletes themselves if they do have a, a positive um, situation to make sure that they can um, participate safely. Um, you know, exertional cycling, leading cause of death in college football since 2000. Um, and it is one of the leading cause of death at the high school level. So I think that's going to be one of the next big things in the next like five to seven years um, at the high school level. Awesome. Well, thank you guys again so much, Doug, Will, Yuri. This was an amazing conversation and everybody needs to go out and read these manuscripts because they're available free on JAT's website, as is all of the Journal of Athletic Training's information. And again, thank you all so much for joining me today. Thank awesome. You. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much.